If you're just joining us, this is the second part of a two-part series on Bradfield and Hayden Clark. If you haven't already, you should go back and listen to episode 13, uh, titled Part 1 of The Cannibal Clarks. And if you're wondering where we've been for the last nine months, you should check out the episode before that, What We've Been Up To, I think it's called. I think that where we've been. You'll figure it out. Maybe. This is Detective Society. I'm Natalie Levy-Costa. And I'm Michael Costa. And this is The Cannibal Clarks, Part 2. off, it was 1984. Bradfield Clark had just viciously murdered Trisha Mack after he had invited her to his apartment for dinner. He strangled her, then dismembered her body with a kitchen knife, wrapped her body parts in garbage bags, cut a piece of her body off, grilled it, ate it, and then stored the body parts in bags in his Datsun 200 SX before turning himself in. I'd like to note here that Trisha had a husband and a family who had no idea what had happened to her. The thought that her co-worker could have done something like this to her probably came as a huge shock. At the very same time, Bradfield's younger brother, Hayden, was becoming increasingly violent and disturbed. Now, I know, I know that we are all hoping that this ship is going to turn right around for the Clarks. And I know it's been a long time, but y'all, it's not. That's not the kind of show this is. It's going to get worse. It's only going to get worse. So many things to say in questions, but it's going to get worse. So in June of 1985, after turning himself in, Bradfield pleaded guilty to second degree murder and the mutilation of human remains. I'm sorry. I got, he turned himself in? Yes. After how long? Not like he, he turns himself in that same year. In 1984. But he's on the lam for with her body, I guess, for a while? No, or? he's not. He turns himself right in. Oh, okay. And it, he's not sentenced until June of 1985. Gotcha. Um, what the fuck? He, it's, it's two very different... Are we going to talk about this crime some more, or are we going to move on from this crime? Because I saw so, some unanswered questions from episode one. Okay, so I think that you should ask your questions, but the answers are probably going to, by and large, be I don't know. Because, again, reiterating what I said in episode one of this, people don't write about Bradfield. Everybody oh, yeah. says, he had an older brother who murdered a lady, but let's talk about Hayden. Um, so what, what questions? Did you I have? guess in your opinion, it's really one big question mm-hmm. because of how that murder unfolds. Do you think he had any plan or idea to do this or had thought about doing this? Or do you think it was like, uh, like spur of the moment, but had been building in him for a long time? I think it had probably been building, um, because of in that book that I read, um, born evil, there are a lot of there's a lot of testimony from people who worked with him around that time and his friends who stated that like he was becoming increasingly difficult, stressed, unmanageable. Um, and then he was really, really into this book, Grendel. Like he started obsessively reading it over and over again and talking about it at inappropriate times. It, it sounds to me like a person who is becoming increasingly disturbed. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And what do we know about her? 
Uh, not a lot other than that she was loved. She was well-liked, flirtatious, but like in like kind of an upbeat way um, and really smart. So, you know. Okay. Yeah. Let's hear about Um. So... Ugh. So he was sentenced to 18 years to life, and he remains in prison to this day. Now, my sweet, beautiful husband was not happy about this, but I did track down Bradfield um, and had maybe been thinking about calling the prison where he is currently an inmate, but I decided against that. What I do have in front of me is his parole record. So the first time that he went up for parole was about 10 years later in April of 1994, uh, denied parole for two years. Um, now this is, so this is a really weird escalation because he keeps being denied parole, denied parole for three years, denied parole for two years, two years, two years, three years. And then in 2009, he has another parole hearing where inmate, so he himself stipulated that he is unsuitable for release. And the, these inmates stipulated to unsuitability notes start in 2002. But in 2009, he stipulates that he is unsuitable for release for seven years. So he volunteers, from what I can tell in the notes, he volunteers not to have another parole hearing for seven years. Then in March 2016, when he has his next parole hearing, Inmate voluntarily waived the right to a hearing for five years. And so his next tentative parole hearing is scheduled for May 2021. But it sounds to me, based on these notes, like he don't want to come out. Like uh, the only good on him, I guess. I don't like I don't know. There's no way prison's that nice where he's like, ah, I just like it here. Maybe he's just a super self-aware murderer. He might be. I mean, he did turn himself in. I feel like that's where Bradfield and Hayden really differ. Because yeah. Hayden does not turn himself in. Yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, I wouldn't Spoiler know that. Spoiler alert. Actually. I, the, I, there was a strong implication he wasn't going to pull a Bradfield, but I didn't want to spoil it for myself. So things are not going well for the Clark family. Uh, the oldest son, the golden child, murders a woman, eats her body part, and gets sentenced to life in prison, 18 years to life. Um, and about a year later, after Bradfield was sentenced, the Clark father, Hayden Sr., commits suicide at his uh, daughter Allison's home. Oh, come on. Super cool, Dad. Um, and something we, we don't really talk about Allison in part one, but something that um, they write about a lot in Born Evil is she wanted nothing to do with this family. She had a bunch of mental health problems that she was very, very aware of. She tried really hard to take care of herself. She moved as far away as she could from her family. She wanted nothing to do with this family. And, you know, like most narcissists, they just... Would not leave her alone. Um, so Hayden Sr. commits suicide in her home. Um, and that's really the last that we hear about Allison. She does not want anything to do with this damn family. Um, not that I would either. 
Uh, in the year between the, senten- the sentencing of his brother Bradfield and the suicide of his father, Hayden is not getting any better. In fact, he had been repeatedly brought into the police station and questioned in the disappearance of a six-year-old girl named Michelle Dorr, who had vanished while playing in the backyard of her father's house in Silver Spring, Maryland, just across the border from Washington, D.C. Michelle's father, Carl had gone looking for his daughter after she'd gone to play at a friend's house. Um, And her friend just happened to be Eliza Clark, daughter of Jeff Clark. Jeff's house was two houses away from Michelle Doors, and Jeff's brother, Hayden, was also staying there at the time. Unfortunately, six-year-old Michelle was never seen alive again. Super good. Super good. It's not. Yeah, I don't like where we left it because Clark was, I mean, Hayden was just standing at his brother's door. It was very ominous the way you set it up. And so he definitely murdered that child, I would assume. This is spoiler alert part two. I guess you guys will have to wait after the musical break and we will be right back with more answers. time we recorded nothing because we recorded these episodes back to back um our dogs are still jerks they are sitting 10 feet away from us oh we did move rooms hopefully the sound quality in this room is better i feel like last time we recorded when we were recording in the guest room it was very echoey um i will also repeat repeat if you have not heard part one of this episode please go back and listen to it because it is Crazy Town, USA, and you'll be missing out on a lot of context. Okay, Michael, any anything else? Any quips? No. Do, no. I, do I usually have quips? Is I feel like you, you're normally very sassy. No, well, Someone say overly is, sassy. Is that what the the listeners think? Yeah, they're always like, "Yo, Mike, turn down I'll have that to work sass." On that. Uh, Want to tell us about how the gym was last night? I know that you've been talking a lot about going to the gym. <laughs> you want to talk about how the weather is again? It was very rainy today. It was very rainy. I hated it. Killing the podcast game. <laughs> this is rude. Uh, also, if you're wondering where we've been or what future changes to the show might look like, please listen to the first new episode that we released titled, what, what was it called? Did we just talk about this? Yeah. We don't really have a name for it. Where we've been. Yeah. Where where we've been. That's good. A nine month reflection. Um, yes. Also, another note I would like to preempt this as much as possible. I would like to say again that I am actively an ally and advocate of the LGBT community and anything stated in this podcast is said with the best intentions um, and only as it pertains to this specific story. My intention is to tell a story that is as close to the truth as possible and not to offend or malign anyone. Anything even borderline offensive that I have to say, I'm only repeating because it might be contextually helpful um, or so that people get an idea of how the story was being reported, um, which is to say in a super uncool way. People, I guess at the time had very little chill. Sounds like it's what, the early 90s? 
It is. Uh, well, when these stories were being reported, yeah, it was the early 90s. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we probably made a little progress since then, but not to get too topical with it, but people are claiming high school students are you know, crisis actors. So maybe not. Maybe we're the ones with no chill. It's just maybe we as a, you know, animal are. Let's not go down that road. Whoa, Mike. He's throwing things, guys. I'm very excited to return to Detective Society. Let's go. Part two. Cannibal Clarks. Okay, back to the show. Um, so now it is 1986 and beautiful cherubic Michelle Dore is missing. I really suggest that everyone who is listening pull out his or her phone or laptop and Google Michelle Dorr, M-I-C-H-E-L-E-D-O-R-R, because seeing this adorable little girl, for me, at least changes everything. She, she's such like a tiny little 80s child. Um, there's one really iconic picture of her in a red dress, like, like her mom dressed her up to go get, to go to Sears to get her picture taken that, that really just breaks my heart looking at this little girl. Here's a little bit of background on the Dorr family that unfortunately shed some light on why the search for Michelle was so complicated and ultimately really unsuccessful. Uh, During the time that Michelle disappeared, Michelle's parents, Carl and Dee Dee, were in the midst of a very contentious divorce. Dee Dee alleged that Carl was abusive. Um, Carl, who, by the way, was not doing himself any favors, had threatened to take Michelle away from Dee Dee and run away. And because of how terribly their marriage had ended, neither parent was really willing to work together to find this little girl. Oh, Jesus. Come on, people. Yeah, so we'll, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about why that unfolded the way that it did. So, in fact, when Michelle was initially reported missing by her father, Carl, yeah. police spoke to Dee Dee and she immediately claimed that Carl had something to do with it. Like, they called her. So, I and if I remember this correctly, they called her and, like, informed her that her daughter was missing. Um, and she immediately was like, Carl did this. Literally... In any other case, I would support what the police did from there because typically it is the person closest to yeah. the victim who unfortunately perpetrates a crime against them, except except that they have the most honest-to-God bonkers family living two houses down from this little girl. So the police immediately narrow in on Carl Dorr. They interrogate him over and over again, so much so much so that he ends up having a mental breakdown. Uh, after being brought in for his second polygraph test, Carl said, quote, I started hallucinating. I just couldn't take the pressure. I hadn't slept in a week and my brain was soup. He also said that while watching television that week after Michelle disappeared, he began to believe that the people on the show were talking about him and to him. And he believed that the police had somehow tampered with his TV set. He began going to his father's grave. And when he spoke to his dad's headstone, he started hearing the headstone respond to him. He thought that if he could find Michelle, he'd be able to bring her back to life. At this point, she'd been missing for for quite a while. And if he did that, then he must also be Jesus Christ. And so he began announcing to people that he was Jesus Christ. Kind of jumping the gun on that one. In addition to that, 
So hold on. It, it doesn't stop there. He actually confesses to murdering Michelle and then quickly recounts that confession and checks himself into a psychiatric facility. And to be honest, I'm not sure why we don't hear about more parents of lost or murdered children having similar experiences. Because to me, it seems unimaginable. Your child is missing. You can't eat. You can't sleep. And to top it all off, you're probably the prime suspect. Well, it's and it's like your child disappeared. You sent them to play at a friend's house. They vanished. And now the cops want to keep asking you how you did it. And that's all they're interested in. And at some point you're like, I didn't, I don't know what happened to her. And like that, the idea that someone goes, yeah, you did. What happened? What happened? Like, it's yeah. going to drive you insane really easily. And the fact that you're not sleeping. Yeah. As Carl's mental health begins to deteriorate and they realize like we're not getting anywhere with Carl, the police begin to pivot to the Clarks because a step. So like assuming that Carl is telling the truth. Once well, you've driven a man insane. Well, let's just. You know, for shits and giggles, I pretend he's telling the truth. <laughs> yeah. Um, Fucking. So, assuming that Carl is telling the truth, which at this point, like, yeah, you might as well. Um, witnesses recalled having seen Hayden in the front driveway of the house around the time that Michelle disappeared. So, I mean, they basically put two and two together. They said, okay, she... Carl says she was going over to the Clark's house to play with Eliza, who is Jeff Clark's daughter, who is about the same age. And we have this man who was out in the driveway around that same time. Maybe he saw something. Yeah. The problem was that they couldn't find any physical evidence that linked basically anyone to Michelle's disappearance. And Michelle's body still hadn't been found. So what did happen to Michelle? According to Adrian Havill, the author of Born Evil, Michelle had walked over to the Clark's house looking for Eliza Clark. Eliza wasn't home at the time, but Hayden lured the little girl inside, then pulled his hand over her mouth and began to stab her in the throat. Eliza managed to bite him on the back of his hand before dying. Once she was dead, according to Havill, he attempted to have sex with the little girl's body, but he couldn't actually do it. He cleaned up the room and put the little girl's body in his truck and then actually, and this to me is insanity, he goes to the hospital with the girl's body in his truck, gets his hand stitched. We know he did this because there's a record of it from when she bit him, then goes and works his scheduled shift at work. After his scheduled shift, and this is one of the things that like blows my mind about this person, because clearly he is mentally unwell. And according to almost everyone who talked about him as a child, he was also mentally handicapped. So he goes and works his shift at work because he says to the author of this book, well, I couldn't skip work. People would notice that. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... After, so he goes to the hospital, gets stitches, goes to work. After his shift at work, he takes Eliza's body to Paint Branch Park. That doesn't sound right. That sounds like a typo. Let's assume it's Paint Branch Park near Columbia, Maryland. Um, According to every account I've read of this murder, Hayden then began to bite her body in order to drink her blood. Which... 
What the fuck, man? This is a this is a this is a real this is gonna be a tough one. Uh yeah. Well, you know. Did he so he shows up to a hospital with little people hand bites on or bags on his hand and I guess no one phones that in. No one even asked him any questions about it. I mean, and maybe I'm maybe I just don't understand what, you know, your hand looks like bitten, but Alright, well, you know, let's Soldier on, I guess. What um, the victims? So here's something that's equally awful. Nothing really happens to Hayden after that. He has minor run-ins with the law for robbery, changes jobs a couple times, falls in and out of homelessness, but no one can figure out what happened to Michelle and her family both have no answers for the police and receive no answers from the police. And Michelle's Michelle Dorr's body isn't found until 2000. So wait, he's already in jail by 2000. Yep. So he never confesses to it either. He confesses to the murder, but states the police were such assholes to him that he didn't feel like doing them any favors. How mentally ill is this guy? I can't, I really, Michael, for the life of me, I cannot tell. I cannot tell because there are Sociopath? two different there are two different stories being told here, right? One is of this like really feeble, really sad child who is really slow. And then the other one is of this like budding sociopath who manipulates people, kills animals, kills a child, and then is smart enough to cover his tracks. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's weird. He must have done a lot of telling over the story. Well, and I think I mentioned this in the last episode. He's always the victim well, in, yeah. in his telling of the story. The police always brutalize him, and the police really don't do themselves any favors in this in this account either. Well, they're off to because, a bad start. So they're already off to a bad start, and then we're going to talk about some very problematic procedure later on in this case. Okay. Um. So he spends the next, let's see, this happens in 1986. He spends the next six years basically working odd jobs, um, in and out of homelessness, desperate to make friends. There, there are a lot of accounts of him hanging out in either bars or churches. Um, Cover all your bases, totally. Yeah, definitely. Both sides of the, oh, you know, yeah. of the equation. Um he actually, so his work, or not work, but his involvement with the church is going to play a role in what we're about to talk about. So what he would do is he would show up at churches and say, you know, I'm down and out. I just, I need some help um, getting work. And so like the women's clubs and the women's charities at churches would refer him to people for like landscaping jobs, jobs or being a handyman yeah. and by and large i mean over the next six years nothing too disturbing happens that we know of that that we know of that is true that we know of so fast forward to 1992 hayden clark was homeless and often hired to do landscaping for locals through through church groups that supported homeless people in the um dc and maryland communities laura howderling 
I, I believe that that is how her last name is pronounced. I, I, I have to be honest with you guys. It, there's a lot of consonants in this last name. Um, so Laura Howdling was 23 years old. Um, she was a Harvard grad living in Bethesda with her mother, Penny. At Harvard, her friends had nicknamed her Twiggy because she was six feet tall, blonde, athletic, but she was also brilliant and well-liked by both students and professors. She was described as having the unique ability to interest all kinds of people and put them at ease. She seemed like the kind of person who could make you feel special no matter who you were. I often describe my husband, Michael, as being that, that kind of person. so lame. <laughs> So embarrassing. What a nerd. Um, she also seems entirely relatable. Even though she had just graduated, let's repeat this, from Harvard. Harvard. She came back home to live with her mom while she was trying to figure out what she wanted to do after college. I feel like everyone has that phase right after college where they're like, what am I going to do with my life? Well, I was a mess at 23. Yeah, and I wasn't six feet tall or blonde or beautiful or brilliant, so I, I can't imagine. Um... Unfortunately, Hayden Clark often did odd jobs for Penny Hatterling, Laura's mother, which meant he knew where Penny kept an extra key to her home in her gardening shed. The night he decided to break into Penny's house, he was wearing a blonde wig and uh, an entire set of women's clothing, including a pair of underwear he had stolen from Penny. Now, I'm going to read an account of what happened next, according to Born Evil. He turned the key to the front door of Penny's house, tiptoed silently towards Laura's bedroom, and once inside, he used the gun to nudge her awake. The first words out of his mouth seemed strange, but everything must have seemed strange to Laura at that moment. Why are you in my bed, he asked. Laura was speechless. What are you doing in my bed? He spoke to her again. Why are you wearing my clothes? There were tears in her eyes now. Tell me I'm Laura. You're Laura. Please don't hurt me. Hayden asked her again, this time forcing her to swear on the Bible that he was Laura. She did. Then holding a gun on her, he forced Laura to get up, undress, and take a bath. After the cleansing ritual, he led her back into the bedroom and had her lie down and turn over on, his, on her stomach. His plan was to abduct her, take her to his campsite, and quote-unquote introduce her to Hayden. He bound her wrists with duct tape, then her ankles, then turned her over and covered her mouth. But he became so excited he couldn't stop and put the tape over her nose and her eyes, winding it around and around her head. She couldn't breathe. Laura struggled until the lack of air suffocated her and she laid motionless. Hayden said that as soon as Laura became still, he tried to remove the duct tape from her mouth with a pair of scissors. He claimed that he missed running the shears into her neck, causing blood to flow onto her sheets and into the mattress pad. Hayden sat by the bed and watched Laura for nearly an hour. At times, he fondled her breasts and stroked her dead body, but has always vowed that in her case, he neither raped nor practiced cannibalism on any part of her remains. Just after three that morning, he wrapped her body in a queen-sized sheet, slung her over his shoulder, and carried her out to his Datsun pickup, exiting by using Penny's side door that was only steps from the street. Hayden put Laura, still shrouded in the sheet, 
on the narrow bed in the back of the pickup. He went back inside and gathered up the bloody evidence, then carried them out to the truck. So that's not great. This is a really, this is a... What did we used to say during these cases? I, I can't even remember what we used to talk about. This sounds really disturbing, man. Yeah, it's it's terrifying. It's terrifying. This old guy walks into your How bedroom. How old is he now? Like 35? Uh, no, because he was 30 when he came out of the Navy in 1984. This is like 86? This is 92. But we're all the way in 90. Oh, so this yeah. has been... I said that was six years after the disappearance of Michelle Dore. So this guy walks into your room. He's clearly a man in a blonde wig. And then he's forcing you to tell him that he is you. Oh, God. The the bath and just all of it's so awful. Yeah, it's really fucking awful. Um... So once Laura's family and her friends realized she's gone, they reported her missing to the police. But by then, Hayden had already buried her body. Um, And the reason that I think it took a couple days for them to realize that she wasn't around or at least like one day because she was supposed to go on a trip with her brother. And she was she had either gone on the trip, was about to go on the trip or had just come back from the trip. So people weren't really sure if like. She was supposed to be home, like where she was supposed to be. There was a lot of confusion about like locationally where she was. Um, but Hayden buried her body, her body immediately. He had, though, been careless, much more careless than he was when he abducted Michelle Dore. Uh, he left a bloody fingerprint in Laura's room. His prior record and possible involvement in the Michelle Dore case led police to seek him out immediately. But so the police procedure was extremely problematic. I want to talk about that, but I also want to talk about his assertion that stabbing her in the neck was a, he did by accident. And there is a note in the book where the accident part of this, the author says, is completely no one can corroborate that. This is only something that he well, yeah, ever said. Yeah. I mean, how else would someone corroborate? Well, so I, there would, I guess for some of these parts, there's like physical evidence. So like the fact that he forced her to take a bath. Yeah. There was evidence that that had taken place. Um, I, I don't buy it. Yeah. So I only am willing to believe it because the, I would assume coroner's report and stuff like that clearly determined that she suffocated first. And given what he claims, I guess his plans were, I could see him panicking to take the tape off and like, he's not well, so maybe, but it seems like a more than irrelevant detail in the whole grand scheme of this case. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, oh, you came in to abduct her and take her to a different site, but stabbing her in the neck was the mistake. Like, nah, homie. Sorry. Um, so back to the book. Once they kind of zeroed in on Hayden because of the fingerprint, the word was put out to check the churches. He'd be, I mentioned earlier, he was, he was often hanging out at churches. A police officer spotted Hayden's truck in the parking lot of First Baptist Church in Bethesda at 1017 the same night. So he leaves at 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. literally the next night, 1017. He spotted at the church. 
An arrest team of eight cops surrounded the truck. An officer looked inside the window and saw Hayden peacefully asleep, covered by a quilt with his arm around a one-eyed teddy bear. Another cop banged on the window with a flashlight and told Hayden to step outside. Hayden rubbed his eyes and got out of the truck. He asked them what was going on. You're under arrest for the murder of Laura Hatterling. Hayden shrugged. Okay, he said. None of the cops read him his rights. In the next seven and a half hours, Hayden Clark would ask for a lawyer more than 100 times, with the cops ignoring his every request. It is bad police work. That is terrible police work. Listen, listen. I've, no I've, one Mirandizes him. He asks for his lawyer. He specifically asks for a specific lawyer, not a public defender. He had a lawyer. Get the hell out of here. That's the picture of our mom. Yeah, sorry. Mike was just looking at the cover of the book. He looks like a real creepazoid. Also, he's got this teddy bear that he sleeps with. So, for whatever, and did that account come from the book or from other sources? That account came from the arresting police officers. Part of me wants to believe that was a stylistic choice by this sometimes lucid sociopath. Oh, so hold on. Because there are videos and recordings of his interrogations later, which is how we know that he asked for a lawyer 100 times. He's got the teddy bear in there with him. And when the cops leave the room... He talks to the teddy bear. Fuck, man. Jeez. Yo, how chilling is that? To Like, to me, that is something so unnerving. Like, so unnerving. And something that I didn't touch on earlier, because it was kind of extra information, was the, the author of Born Evil, Adrian Haville, posits that Hayden only kills Michelle Dore because he is angry at Eliza Clark, his child niece. What? Wait, what? So there's this whole like side story where um, Hayden, so we talked about how Hayden's father called him yeah. retard growing up. Um, and Hayden is not a well-adjusted adult. Um, and he and Jeff have a tumultuous relationship the same way that Hayden has a tumultuous relationship with his entire family. And so Eliza begins making fun of Hayden and says, ha ha, Uncle Hayden, you're retarded. And he, like, flies into a rage. I think I think Havil says that he, like, slaps her um, and that Jeff at that point is like, I need you to move out. And then a couple days later is when um, Michelle Dore shows up. And the thought is that he basically channeled all of that rage into Eliza's friend. That checks out, probably. The... Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of bad parenting. Yeah. Because even if your brother Hayden Jr. is a mess, maybe you, you tell your child not to call her uncle a retard. Yeah, but maybe? even Michelle's. I, I okay. So I feel very. I often feel very bad 
saying these kind of things, especially about the families of victims. But even Michelle's family does not handle that situation well. Like, something, and and again, I don't know if it's when this was happening, what the culture was like. This was 86. I really don't know. But according to a couple of different, I've, I've read this in a couple of different places. So Michelle heads over to the Clarks in the afternoon. And then it's not until like six o'clock or, you know, around sunset nighttime that Carl goes looking for her, for her at the Clark's house. And something that people keep saying over and over again is Carl thought that Jeff was gay and didn't want to go over to the house. What? Yeah, it's it's a really weird little tidbit that I'm like, this is such a weird thing to be reporting on. So there were people reporting when they're pouring the story that the reason the father didn't check on the daughter for so long was because he didn't want to go over to the house because he thought the married husband with a daughter, or he's not married at the time. I believe Jeff is divorced. Okay, is gay. Yeah. It was the late 80s. There's AIDS and stuff. But then why are you seeing your daughter over there? So I don't think that checks. I don't think that plays. It's just something that is like repeated over and over again. And I think it also plays into like this motif of, oh, this cross-dressing cannibal. And like, there's just thing. I feel like they worked really hard to make this story really salacious when the stuff that is at least to me is most interesting doesn't have a lot to do with like sexuality it it has more to do with like to me what are really just terrifying actions I don't know I don't know I don't you just chalk it up to the late 80s early 90s it was a weird time sexually in the United States I, I I really don't know I, I, I don't know. And I find it like super, I, I don't know, in, inappropriate. Because I also feel like you're taking the focus off of this little girl who was murdered and this beautiful, beautiful woman who was, who was a beautiful, intelligent woman who was murdered. Like you, you're not, like you're latching on to these like salacious details at the expense of the memory of a child. Yeah. Um. And that that being said, before the night was over, like Hayden is arrested once and granted the police maybe don't do themselves any favors in the process. Um, But before the night is over, Hayden confesses to both the murders of Michelle Dorr and Laura Hatterling. Laura's body wasn't found until the following year, 1993, and it's actually, it's very unclear as to whether Hayden ate it at all okay. in the finding of her body, um, and sadder still, because Hayden feels that he was the victim in all of this, he asked for a lawyer and was not given a lawyer, he decided he was not going to help anyone find the bodies, um, so... Michelle Dorr's body would not be found until January of the year 2000, which meant that her family spent almost 15 years without being able to bury their little girl. Um, one really, really like sad and terrible detail is 
So Michelle, when she left her her dad's house, the description of what she was wearing was a pink polka dot bathing suit and um, like a beach towel. And the only way that her remains were, well, the initial way that her remains were identified were because her body had been so thoroughly decomposed or because the pink polka dot bathing suit was still intact. That's super upsetting. (laughs) Um. So those are the Cannibal Clarks. Um, Although clearly Bradfield and Hayden were both severely mentally ill, they went down what would seem to be two very different roads that ultimately brought them to the exact same place. Um, Both are still in prison today on opposite sides of the country. You couldn't find any information about, like, uh, Hayden's parole record? or So, the California system, um, wait, which, which prison is Bradfield in? One of the Sands. San Quentin? Mateo? No, San Quentin is in, like, New York. But, no, it's not. It's in California. Oh. Well, he's not in San Quentin, but he's in the California system. I think it's in California. I think it's in New York. I don't think so. Maybe someone will tweet at us. Uh, we don't have any fans anymore. They left. I know. We were recorded in nine months. Do you know what happens in nine months? Lots of things. Babies are born. Oh, gross. Not babies for me. Or us. Yeah, just for other people. Or the world, really. Mm. Um. So... He's in the California system, and for whatever reason, probably because California is super cool that way, um, they do a really good job of keeping their internet records up to date. Maryland, not so much. Ah. All that I could tell was I could verify that Hayden was still a prisoner in the system, but I couldn't get any other information. Like in California, they give you like, here's the phone number to call his, to call him at prison and to set up a time to visit. Like they are all up on it here. It was just like, yeah, he's here. That's all we got. Jesus. So they're both alive. Yeah. That's good. I mean, he was, let's see. Bradfield was put away in 85. Hayden wasn't put away until 92, 93. Um, these guys aren't old. Like or at 60, least they right? weren't at the time. Yeah. Ugh, I have to turn the cover of the book over. He creeps me out. Fucking weird. Although I gotta be, yeah, weird. <sighs> what, what were you gonna say? I was having trouble remembering what we used to talk about during these shows when like the murders were really heinous. Like, what did we talk about during Benita Jacks? Did I just like say how awful it was the whole time? There was a lot of sighing. There was a lot of you being like, oh, "Okay, okay." So I was being typical. Jesus Christ! I thought I'd forgotten how to do this, but no, I'm still doing the same thing I was doing before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just a lot of sighing, a lot of like rubbing your face. Um, a lot of like, like, like sh- eyebrows. There's a lot of eyebrow movement. So I'm, I'm creating um, wrinkles by being the co-host of the show. Is what you're yeah, saying? Yeah. So it's not great for hearing, but I can tell what you're feeling because I am feeling the same. Mm. I, I don't know if you find that helpful. Uh, is it, who? So is, is Jeff still alive? You said Jeff turns out to be a real piece of work, but you never got into that. I don't want to be Jeff. 
But you read something. Uh, yeah, he's he's just kind of an asshole. He's got a temper. He's difficult. But all things considered, he nothing nice seems to, say to about him. have made it out of that family in Either great shape. Either he is the genius of this family who is butchering people and keeping it like way secret, which I am not saying is the case. It's probably definitely do, not the case. I do not want to besmirch Jeff. Jeff seems like a lovely person, all things considered. Um, or, you know, like most people, he just had a shitty family. Really shitty. His family sucked. Do you think him and his sister talk at all? I would hope so. I would hope that if I had two brothers who were murderers and I had one other brother that I would be like, or maybe I wouldn't. <gasps> maybe I would be like, uh-uh, no. Well, I feel like this is a there, pattern. there are two ways to go. You try to like like commiserate with that one or you get far away from that family. It's possible you change your name. First and last, and you pretend like you never were a part of that family. And the mom's passed away, I assume. I actually don't know. You couldn't find any information. I lost on her. track of what happened to Flavia. Hmm. Weird. What a fucking weird, weird story. It, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. And it's another one of these, like the Briley brothers. You remember them? Yeah, I do. The three, the three yeah. brothers from Richmond. That I had never heard of. Never. And there's one book written about it, and nobody writes about Bradfield. It, it's a, you know what? It's a, I mean, it's as sick as it is to say. It's a body count thing. It's a prolific thing. Three, three people die in this story. But it's so bizarre. Yeah, that's true. And maybe that's why they latch on to like the salacious details. But then, but then, who's to say? Because then there are plenty of heavy hitters. The Briley brothers killed. A lot of people. The uh, the guy from Baltimore. Ugh, I, I don't remember his name the now. The crazy guy who claims to have fed burgers to people? No, 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 no. It, it was an earlier episode. Joby or whatever. Excuse me. <clears throat> Good job yawning Joby. on the podcast. <laughs> Professionalism here at Detective uh, Society. Joby or whatever. He killed a lot of people. Joby. I don't remember this one. It was the one that I did with Rebecca. Oh, co-host, uh, former co-host Rebecca. Yeah. Now Rebecca Fanning, right? Yeah. Um, I I don't know that it's a body count thing. I th- I think that the heavy hitters aren't heavy unless they seem super normal. Is that what it is? It's because he yeah. is such a mess it's on the outside. He, is, he was homeless, transient, a weirdo, like. I think people expect him to murder people, whereas like people like there weren't a lot of people coming forward saying he was a stand-up member of society. Yeah, people like John Wayne Gacy or Ted Bundy are like heavy hitters because people yeah. are like, oh, he was such a nice guy. That makes sense. Also, I can't wait to see the Ted Bundy movie with Zac Efron. I know Mike wants no part of it. No, I think you have a you have a, a girlfriend that's gonna go with you, right? I, I might go see it by myself, though. And then episode 14, Mike does a podcast alone about how now I got murdered after seeing it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe not. Maybe not. So do you want to talk more about plans moving forward, or are we just going to do the new sign-off, which is this might be the last episode of Tech Society ever? <laughs> well, what, what, what are you thinking for plans moving forward? Well, let's see. I don't know. 
Neither do I. So why'd you put me on the spot? Well, because you seem like you had a plan. You seem like a so, man okay, with a plan. Nine months ago, yes. when we were still actively recording, mm-hmm. I did a lot of research because we were going to do a reverse detective society where I read the story and you are the one rubbing your face and going, oh my God. I would never rub my face and go, oh my God. I would have so many questions. But because I'm a, a different kind of nerd than you, of a different breed, mine was going to be a presidential assassination. That's You're obsessed with presidential assassinations. I got to tell you, I find it unsavory. You find that unsavory? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Moving on from that <laughs> nonsense. Um, so that's kind of in the can, I guess. I would need like a weekend to find that old script and brush it off and like work well, on we'll it. We'll probably do like monthly episodes at this point. Or this is the last episode ever. It, it might be the last episode ever. Not because we're going to stop recording, but because we might be murdered. Or because we might stop recording. <laughs> you know, anything is possible. As Ron Artest said. It's not Ron Artest. <laughs> anything is possible. It's a deep cut basketball joke right there. So. <laughs> it's Ron Artest, right? No. Who is it? This is the same game we always play. It's Those are the same person. Ron Artest is Metal World Peace. Metal World Peace is the basketball player formerly known as Ron Artest. Kevin Durant. This, this is the same game. Very close again. Wait, it's not Kevin Durant? His last name is different. Who is It's Kevin... Spacey. <laughs> yes. Kevin Spacey, after winning the NBA Finals with the Boston Celtics... He screamed in the air, anything is possible. And then he sexually assaulted a small gay man. God, man. That's a bummer again. It is a total bummer. No, the the guy you're thinking of is Kevin Garnett, who one time made fun of a player for having alopecia. Wait, what? That really happened. He said anything is possible. And he made fun of Charlie Villanueva one time, who has alopecia. Why do I keep quoting him then? Well, everyone else quotes him, like, as mockery because it is the corniest shit ever. I thought it was super inspirational. So the subtext there is that, and again, this is all going to get cut because this is not a basketball podcast. No, it's not going to get cut. Why? Because I edit it, y'all. He don't edit shit. The the subtext there is they were a super team. He had been playing his whole career in Minnesota, not getting anywhere, and then teamed up with Ray Allen, Jesus Shuttlesworth, and Paul Pierce in Boston. There's someone named Jesus Shuttlesworth? God, you're so out of touch with basketball culture. Ray Allen played for the Heat for a while. Remember him? He makes three-pointers. He's bald. His, no. mo- his mom looks just like him with a wig on. I, this is... You would have seen... You would have remembered this, this during the finals. Up, this feels as made up as when I was reading you excerpts from that Okay, book. anyways, when he was a younger player in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, maybe early 2000s, he was playing for Seattle. He was like an all-star for the team. Spike Lee, that's the director, right? Spike Jones, Spike Jones. No, which is the director of the Knicks games? He did uh, do the right thing. Spike Jones is white. So Spike Lee, yeah. Yes. Do the right thing is Spike Lee. Yes. I was gonna say, I feel like it'd be really weird if Spike Jones directed Do the Right Thing. <laughs> Anyways, he and I don't even know this is a Spike Lee joint. Anyways, he directs a movie about a high schooler in love and with basketball, which he's gonna go to college for, and the girl he's in love with. And I think the girl plays basketball How too. How does this all relate to Kevin Garnett? Kevin Durant? That's right. I'm Kevin way Garnett. tangenting. 
You asked me who Jesus was. Oh, Jesus Shuttlesworth. They cast Ray Allen to play the main character across the female Named character. Jesus? The name of the character is Jesus Shuttlesworth. Your romantic lead is a basketball player. And lo- love or basketball or lo- I don't even know what it's called now. Named Jesus Yeah. So the subtext for anything is possible and why it's corny is this. It was a collection of three guys who weren't winning on their own and got together as his first super team before the LeBron James Dwayne Wade Before thing. the real big three. They got together and won a championship. So the irony is that what do you think is possible if you team up with best players in the world? This should be our other podcast. You just tell me stories about sports that I find incredulous. I don't believe that this is real. Which part? Any part of it. Jesus Shuttleworth. Shuttleworth. Meta world peace. They're the same person. Well, do you want to have a story behind that? Because we can always just post this as a dip. We're going to just roll into a new show right now. So, Ron Artest. The, the listeners are really going to get their money's worth. Is, uh, think of Ron Artest as like Dennis Rodman before the tattoos and the hair dye and the personal life. Just kind of the raw energy and power and anger on the basketball floor. Okay. It's like the mid-2000s. We're in college already, I think. I can't remember. So, like, it's in the mid to between 2005 and 2010. He plays for the Indiana Pacers. They're at it, They're against Detroit in Detroit. It's a big rivalry. Regular season game. There's a stoppage in play for some personal fouls. Ron Artest has a history of getting this into- This is a lot of words. Getting into fights on the basketball court. So, he is trying to turn over a new leaf and is laid down on the scorer's table to just try to stay away from the conflict. It's just relaxing. Then some. Is this when somebody threw a chair. Then some dumb fat guy throws a beer at him. Okay, that's rude. He just flies off the handle and was running up to the stands. Oh, I've seen gifs of this. Beats the shit out of a guy who's the wrong guy because oh, he couldn't see who did no. it. In the video, you can clearly see the guy who did it starts punching Ron Artest in the back of the head. Which is kind of commendable. He's almost like, no, asshole, I'm the one you want to fight. Stop beating up this little scrawny guy. Uh, Wait, so he went for a scrawnier guy than the actual no, guy? No, no. I literally just think, I mean, he wasn't looking. He couldn't really see where the beer came from. Like, I don't think he went for the scrawnier guy. Mm, okay. Anyways, he gets suspended forever. And there's a big brawl in the court afterwards. There's a bunch of haymakers thrown. It's really nasty. The NBA, it's really bad for the NBA, especially when players are fighting fans. It's a really bad precedent and look. Long story, long story that I've already told, making it shorter. Basically, once he comes back and he gets into therapy and stuff, at some point in later in his career, he's been with the Lakers, I think, at this point or some point, he decides he's changing his name to Ron Artest, from Ron Artest to Meadow World Peace. From what I remember, he doesn't give a whole lot of explanation that makes any sense about it, but he legally pays the money to change his name to Meadow World Peace. And from that period on, after the therapy he goes to, he is a model defensive shutdown basketball player. Like the hot-tempered like guy before the malice at the palace is what the fight is called because it's the palace of Auburn Hills is the name of the arena. He's a mess, and then afterwards he really turns it around, and now he's like a philanthropist, but he's still named medical piece. I think he had a reality show for a little bit. That's a wonderful story. I love that story. That's a story of a man going to therapy, finding inner peace, and then he's like, I'm going to radiate this peace onto the world. Yeah, he kind of does do that. That guy rules. I'm going to start quoting him more. It's not Ron Artest, is it? Fuck. No. Everything is possible. Fuck. Anything is possible. Fuck it. Guys, I'm rewriting history right now. Quote, unquote, anything is possible, dash, dash, meta world peace. It's more like the Michael Scott thing. It's like- Verbal trademark. Anything is possible, Kevin Garnett, dash, Ron Artest. (laughs) 
Yeah, so next time you quote anything is possible, remember that guy one time made fun of a player with alopecia. Anything is possible! Coming soon, is it still going? End of episode. Coming soon from Detective Society. Basketball stories. <laughs> from a guy who doesn't watch a lot of basketball. And a woman who doesn't believe that basketball happens. What? It's not just, fucking Santa Claus. None of these. St- Michael, you touched the screen with your yeah, face you again. You weren't listening on that one, though. Oh were my we? god. Is it still recording? Oh, you want to do a, a for real sign off? Yes. Okay. So that was a great episode. Great to be back. Anyways, uh, I'm Michael Costa. I'm Natalie Levy. And this is Detective Society. Detective Society.